This is The Guardian. Just a warning before we start, this episode discusses mental illness and self-harm. If you or someone close to you need support, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. For 24-hour crisis support, call Lifeline on 131114, and more information is also available on our website. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and today we're bringing you a bonus episode of our podcast, Book It In. Book It In is Guardian Australia's podcast about the big ideas behind great books. In this episode of Book It In, Guardian features editor Lucy Clark talks to author and artist Heidi Everett. Heidi has had over four decades of lived experience in the public mental health system. What I think is really special about this episode is that she thoughtfully articulates the difference between treatment, cure and recovery and talks about a better way for caring for people experiencing mental illness. If you haven't yet, I highly recommend subscribing to Book It In. Over the next couple of weeks, you'll hear from a diverse range of authors, including Hannah Kent, Ronnie Gorey, and Omar Musa. Just search for Book It In wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. For now, here's Heidi Everett in conversation with Lucy Clark. When you see yourself always as the person with the problem to be fixed, how can you grow? How can you feel empowered? You can't even start having those thoughts because you're constantly thinking there's something wrong with me. Hello, I'm Lucy Clark, the Features Editor at Guardian Australia. Welcome to Book It In, a show about the big ideas behind great books. My guest today is Heidi Everett, the author of a memoir called My Friend Fox. It's about her experiences with mental illness, with the mental health system and its considerable failures. In this book, Heidi achieves something extraordinary. The subject matter is raw and can be harrowing, yet her writing is fine, elegant and lyrical. It's a deeply moving book. And when I was reading it, it struck me that the way we communicate, not just through language, dictates so much about the care we receive. So I wanted to ask Heidi more about how she has communicated through moments of illness and how self-expression and creativity has informed her path. Heidi Everett, I want to start today where someone walking into a bookshop, picking up your lovely little hardcover book would start with the title. It's called My Friend Fox, a memoir. And I'd love you to tell us first, who is your friend Fox and where did you meet? Ah, well, Fox, um, I met an actual fox um, behind a surf club on the Mornington Peninsula at about, well, it was probably about 3am in the morning in the middle of winter, one one year, and that fox was a wild feral fox, not supposed to be in Australia, and there he was. But it actually, the title actually is a bit of a metaphor for mental illness as well. So it's about making friends with something that maybe shouldn't be there. Um, And it's also about a dog, my dog. I cannot wait to talk (laughs) about your dog. I will get to your dog. But What is Fox a representation of? I know he was real, but then you've created this beautiful fable throughout your book. So Fox on the surface is a metaphor for schizophrenia and mental illness of any diagnosis, really. So that story that gets braided through my book is about schizophrenia as much as it is about the story of a wild 
feral fox in Australia. So that story goes through my narrative of recovery from mental illness and recovery from the mental health system as well and how to deal with things that are a bit uncomfortable. It's an incredibly personal and vulnerable exploration of your experiences with the mental health system and you really, really lay yourself bare and take the reader into your confidence but also deeply into your suffering. How difficult was it for you to write these words and and where did you begin? You know, it wasn't that difficult because I've been a, a musician, a songwriter for about 10 years and before that an illustrator and I've also done stand-up comedy. So I've been telling my story through the arts for, you know, a good 15, 20 years. And on top of that, I've been telling my story over and over and over again to the mental health system. So actually putting it on paper and and capturing it in a book is the easy part to me. It's incredibly poetic, though. I mean, your use of language is really, really beautiful. It's not like it's a transcript of talking to mental health professionals about the mental health system. It's really very lyrical. I think that's my background in songwriting. I've always been a very visual thinker and I've always seen in pictures and and heard in music and so writing for me, it's kind of like switching on a tap and the words form as pictures and then I just capture them and put them back into words kind of thing onto the page. So songwriting for me came very naturally and so writing a book was just putting those songs between a cover really. Your book pulls Absolutely no punches in painting a picture of what mental health services are like and how traumatising they can be. So often they add another layer of trauma to already traumatised people. Your descriptions of psych wards feel nightmarishly 19th century, actually. Can you just sum up for the listener how long you've been engaged with the mental health system in Australia in different ways? So I'm almost 50, well, I'm around 50. So, and I've probably started off when I was about I think 16 or 17, I first went to a mental health clinic on my own because I knew things weren't going well. So what's that? That's four and four and a bit decades. Um, so I've been through psych rehab. I've been through the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And for me, the failing of the system meant another 10 years in the system because it's just a round door. So You know, that's a metaphor a lot of people use, that you go in one way and come back out the other and then you go back in again. So there's no conclusion. It's just round and round. You know, they keep rearranging the mental health system to be better and all they're doing is rearranging the furniture. So from my point of view, it hasn't changed much. Has anything changed? Or as you say, it's really just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, (laughs) if I may. If the Titanic's already, what is it, seven kilometres underwater? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Um, You know, I've got to be careful what I say, but um, the Victorian mental health system has just done a royal commission into itself to try and create a whole new system and a whole new decor. But, you know, we were presented with a a set of um, options that we had to choose from at the start, and those options were already Um, structures of the mental health system. So we had to choose which order of priority we wanted to put on them rather than actually saying, you know what, there's uh, quite a few other ideas that people are talking about that we could implement, but no, they're not on the uh, vision board. Why do you have to be careful about what you say? I think because mental health advocacy is 
well, it's political, um, but as an artist, I guess I'm a little bit more able to speak honestly and truthfully about things. Let me then just talk to Heidi about her experience as not an advocate. I want to ask you what we're getting wrong, but I also know that this is not your burden and it should be up to those in charge of the system with all the best evidence at their fingertips to look for solutions. But obviously first-hand experience is, you know, really instructive and salutary. What should we fix first, Heidi Everett? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to ask such a big question. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, one of the answers is is constantly being said uh, that it's not very diverse. Um, It's represented and it's still led by a very narrow cohort of, of people representing very diverse people and cultures and languages. That, to me, is kind of one of the big things. You know, through the the COVID lockdowns, we got told what to think about mental health by one or two very similar-looking and sounding people in the mental health system. And to me, it, it wasn't a true guide, I think, for what a lot of people would have been going through. So, to me, it was a real lack of cultural leadership And, you know, just the same two or three people telling the whole state or country what to do about mental health was was a bit remiss. And also, you know, there's no diverse bodies in mental health leadership, so everyone's abled and educated. You know, where are the disabled leaders with mental health realities? Because mental health is so different to so many people, it can't be pigeonholed. But it still is, you know. (laughs) We still say schizophrenia is this, depression is this, anxiety is this. This is how you recover from it. But to me, we've got to look a bit further than that. And that, that involves asking other people to lead the conversations. You just reeled off a few labels and I'm interested to know, are labels or, you know, diagnoses helpful or or can they be harmful as well? I think it depends which fish tank you're swimming in. So when I got diagnosed with schizophrenia at, I think it was about 24, I was in a psych ward. I'd been picked up, scraped up off the street and taken to a public psych ward and that was completely new to me, the whole psych ward reality. Just describe it a bit for us, if you can. Yeah, so there's there's two um, psych ward realities in Australia. There's the public system and there's the private system. I only have experience of the public mental health system, the public psych system, and that's a reality where you can be admitted against your will. Um, you can be taken in by police and... A lot of people in the public system don't have family or friends, you know, supporting them. So it's a very isolating experience to get there. And it's based on getting someone to a point where they're no longer trying to kill themselves. Pretty much the only way you can be admitted to a public psych ward is if you're threatening harm to yourself. So it's a very critical space, like all hospitals, I guess, so you've got 30 adults usually in a public ward on a, on a busy day and all those adults have come from very, very different trauma backgrounds, very different cultural backgrounds, language backgrounds, and we're pretty much all given the same medication and the same doctor. Uh, one of the posters on the wall of a public psych ward that I've been in is the average stay quota. Uh, so there's no posters about 
anything much about, you know, recovery or healing, but there's a quota statement to say your average day might be about six weeks. Right. Seems very uniform for everyone. <laughs> uniform is a lovely way of putting it. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's very, very limited and very constrained in, in a number of ways. And, you know, I just I can't see my friends with with other health realities like cancer or diabetes being thrown in the same room and just being given one specialist. That is very 19th century but that's the way we still do it in public wards. What about the the physical reality of the ward and how that physical environment makes an impact on someone who's unwell? So the the main thing you want to do with someone suffering or going through an active psychosis is to reduce all the stimulation. So if you can imagine taking away all things that might uh, be interesting. So posters, plants, musical instruments, decor, outside areas often. So if you take away all those things of an environment that can stimulate your imagination, that's what a public psych ward to me looks like. So it, it's white walls, white floor, very, very stark, heavy furniture, you know, just a table and chairs, a couple of couches. And a TV. But there is the excitement of the smoke alarm on the wall. There is a moment in your, there is a moment in your book where you actually <laughs> address the smoke alarm. My friend, my friend, the smoke <laughs> alarm as like it's some incredible vista ahead of you. It's, um, yeah, it's pretty grim. Yeah, they do tell you if you set off the smoke alarm by having a cigarette in the shower, <laughs> you've got to pay for it. <laughs> um, so, so what would... I mean, what would be a great development if, the, you know, this physical environment that you go into as uh, someone who's uh, really unwell, what, what could be done Like that's simple? Well, one thing a lot of older mental health advocates talk about, and this is another conversation about the age of advocacy, is the need to be around nature and circles instead of squares and outdoors instead of indoors. So, you know, just being around trees and nature is so important to so many people recovering from trauma and and trauma stress. There's none of that in the mental health system. And even now with the, the 65 recommendations to improve Victoria's mental health system, there's no mention of nature. And yet that's what we're all saying, you know. (laughs) That's where our healing is, walking out in the bush, being in the sea, being around dogs, horses, and there's nothing like that whatsoever in, in the recommendations. It could be as simple as going outside. Well, you know, I think in Europe they have something called Nate, um, was it mental health prescribing now? So they doctors can actually prescribe that people go and spend six weeks doing nature. Mm. You know, there are advances being made around the world. I just wonder if Australia is kind of there yet. Heidi, I'm really interested in what your book says about the way we communicate. I mean, the the book itself obviously is a a very traditional mode of communication in that it uses language and words. But before writing, you've already mentioned music, art. There's beautiful artwork in your book. But I want to go back a bit further in time 
before your diagnosis to your adolescence when you were trying to communicate in a different way again. And there's a very moving passage in your book, which I hope is okay for me to read. It reflects on your secondary school years when you're, you say you were dropping all sorts of clues for your teachers, the adults in your life that you were hoping would rescue you. This is just a short passage I'm going to read. I wanted them to see that I was tumbling out into an abyss of no return, but I didn't know how to show them. So I sat on the footpath outside school until dusk, huddled up against the school fence, watching as teachers streamed out of the car park, hoping that just one would look over, stop, and ask if I was all right. Surely my wretched presence looked odd, but not one teacher saw me despite the many times I tried. I just wonder what you would say to that teenage Heidi now. Oh, boy. I just hope that um, talking about different modes of language, you know, when I say different modes of language, I don't mean cultural language. I mean the way we express ourselves. And so for me, that huddling up against the fence, that that to me was a huge billboard. (laughs) Yeah. Why was nobody looking at this billboard with flashing lights and words and, you know, and up on the screen? Why was nobody able to read my language? Okay, you're saying all behaviour is communication. So is the message then that we all need to be aware of different types of communication and just that, you know, really positive, normal, in inverted commas, way with words is not actually all we should be looking for? No, and, I mean, if you think about the ads that you see on TV for dogs in pounds and, you know, the RSPC rescuing dogs. We know the nonverbal communication mode of dogs when they're in distress, but we we can't, for some reason, we've lost that ability with, with humans. But it's very similar, you know, huddled up in the corner, shivering, scared. <laughs> that was me all over. And I just think, why was no one able to read my language you write about speaking the language psychiatrian, um, which is, you know, learning to play a game, which kind of makes a mockery of the system. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Well, if you want to get out of a psych ward, you need to speak uh, the language of psychiatry. So words like dissipated, my delusions have so much reduced, the medication, yes, I can understand that you know, 600 grams of Seroquel every morning does reduce the symptoms of hearing voices. And I understand that my psychosis is a chemical reality, much like diabetes or any other health disorder. So you've got to speak that language before they stamp you as recovered enough to go home. And what makes me curious is that psychiatry doesn't learn my language. So you know, if I want to speak with a guitar and sing a song about my reality, is it my fault that the psychiatrist and the caseworker doesn't know how to play guitar? So it's very, very unbalanced. Are you saying that you observed like basically a way to get out by playing the game and uh, ticking boxes? <laughs> yeah, it, it's well known by people experienced in mental health uh in psych wards, that there's a language you need to speak to be able to get out of a psych ward. But then that opens up a whole new series of problems because if you play the game and get out and you're not actually at a place where you're safe to go home, then you know you've played yourself really. So it's it's a dilemma and I call it the psych ward dilemma and I'm not sure I know the answer. 
<laughs> just sort of on this issue of treatment, you do in your book address the differences between the medical model and the social model of disability, the, you know, the difference between treatment and cure, and you, you push back against the pathology of illness and instead ask how we can better accommodate various modes of living and engaging with the world. You just touched on this with your story about your language, your music. First of all, can you just explain what is the difference between these two models, the medical model and the social model? This is a dialogue that happens every single day in the wider disability community, but it doesn't happen at all in the mental health system. So the medical model of disability is when, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, we used to diagnose people and treat people's disability based on their impairment. So if you were blind, you had to learn, you know, how to see basically, or if you were deaf, you had to learn how to speak and hear. Um, and that was the cure for, for disability. Around 2000, the social model of disability started to displace that and that was about how do we make society more accessible to people with diverse bodies. So that was about let's let's bring in Auslan interpreters so deaf people can, you know, use sign instead of having to speak and hear and let's put braille in, in venues and let's create some ramps into shops for people with wheelchairs. But mental illness hasn't played this yet. We, we're still talking about how do we cure a person's mental illness and saying you have to be better to fit into society and you have to act this way and you have to be calm and you have to manage your stress, rather than saying actually society has a responsibility not to stress people and we still don't know what that might look like yet, the social model of mental illness, because no one's talking about what responsibility the environment has on people and it's starting to get there because people are starting to talk about trauma, that word trauma and trauma stress and saying actually it was the environment that triggered my mental illness. It wasn't just chemistry or biology that actually some really bad things happened to me which caused me a lot of distress and I have to deal with that distress for the rest of my life because whenever I go out the front door there are things that remind me of that time and those spaces and those people everywhere I go you know it might be a look of somebody or I might see a, you know a, a, some kind of action happening on a Friday night down at the pub and it just reminds me of my stress and that is what the social model of mental illness is that we actually say how does the environment have any uh you know responsibility to, to disability and mental health disability. And when you start talking about that, then you bring in psych wards. And you, you mentioned at the start that they re-traumatise, traumatise people. They certainly do because they force medication on people. They take away all the arts and, and nature and, and culture. They strip you down to a, to a no name, to a number and they force you to, to fit into a box. And that's exactly, when you look at trauma, that's kind of where mental illness springs from. What is the impact of a person feeling like they are someone that needs fixing? Why does a person have to fix themselves always to be better? Why, why are we looking at what's causing the symptoms of schizophrenia, which is stress, basically? 
you know, and so when you see yourself always as the person with the problem to be fixed, how can you how can you grow? How can you feel empowered? How how can you start, you know, thinking about and stating your human rights to access the arts or, you know, go to a restaurant. You can't even start having those thoughts because you're constantly thinking there's something wrong with me. I can't go anywhere because I I start hallucinating or I start feeling anxious rather than saying, actually, what's making me anxious? What's making me get a little bit, you know, manic? (laughs) While we're on the subject of this tension between individual responsibility and the responsibility of the environment or society, I I know that people, individuals, want to try and do better. And, you know, we have talked about bettering the system in a general way, but what, what would you say to our listeners about what they can do as individuals in terms of what what do we get wrong and when we're thinking about interacting with or trying to support people living with mental illness. It'd be great if more people could um, have a look at the medical model of disability and the social model of disability and then overlay that onto mental health and mental illness and then you can see exactly what's lacking. You know, I think there's a there's a perception that people with mental illness aren't intelligent and I think that's quite common with schizophrenia that we we often think of schizophrenia as a criminal and forensic reality because the media often, you know, that's all we get reported as is as he was off his meds when he did the crime, you know, and <laughs> we never ever see positive media about someone with schizophrenia doing something amazing. You know, Dylan Alcott, who just became Australian of the Year with a disability, you know, that's amazing. But would it ever happen for someone with schizophrenia? I'm not sure because people with schizophrenia are still perceived as something's wrong with them and, you know, we can't trust them. <laughs> so I think that it would be lovely if, if if this report went out and people started thinking of schizophrenia as a positive reality for diverse people rather than always the forensic problem. Hey, Laura Mafiotz here again, just checking in to make sure you subscribe and follow Book It In in your podcast app. Right now in the Book It In feed, there's also a new episode. It's a conversation with Munanjali and South Sea Islander woman Chelsea Wadigo, who talks about sovereignty, survival and self-determination in the colony. Just search for Book It In wherever you're listening to this podcast. Okay, back to Heidi Everett in conversation with Lucy Clark. We've talked about uh, treatment and cure and the difference between the two, but there's something else I'd love to talk about, which is healing. Um, what does healing mean to you, Heidi? Oh, goodness gracious. It's <laughs> We used to say recovery was the gold standard of, of mental health. Um, you know, someone with schizophrenia or depression, they recovered. Um, but about 20 years ago, those of us with lifelong mental health realities, we sort of had the conversation that recovery is such a construct by the medical system again that, you know, you're recovered if you don't have symptoms, you're recovered if you've got a small job, you're recovered if you go out, you know, for a social outing now and then and you're not trying to hurt yourself, that's recovered. But to me that's recovered from an episode and it's recovered from the psych ward 
you haven't even gone anywhere near healing from the trauma. And that is a whole other system of, of being is to heal from the pain that happened to you. And there's trauma there for so many people in the public psych system. It's everyone I ask who I meet in my work, you know, eventually I get around to the conversation about complex trauma and it's pretty much always, yes, I relate to that totally. Even if people have never considered it before, they think for a minute and go, mm, yep, that's it, that's what happened. So for me, you cannot recover from abuse. You cannot recover from trauma happening to you. But you can start to heal, and that's that takes a whole other series of tools and efforts that the medical model just don't have, you know, where do you go for those tools? Well, I'm going to say it, the arts. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, this is a beautiful segue because I want you to tell us about a moment where everything changes for you. In your book, you write about um, in during one of your psych ward stays, a uh, guitarist in music therapy has left the old guitar out and it's not been locked away as it usually is. Tell us what happened to you in that moment. Well, I was actually experiencing a time when I couldn't actually speak, so I'd lost my ability to talk for many years, and that that goes back to another reality I have, which involves language as well. So I was at a space where I wasn't able to speak, I wasn't able to look at people, I was in this ward for weeks on end and nothing, nothing was familiar or good and I walked into this small room and there at the end was this old guitar leaning up against the wall and just something behind me pushed me towards it and said you need to pick that up and you need to play it and I thought I've got nothing to lose I might as well but I was terrified because someone like me was not allowed to be around a guitar like (laughs) my own trauma story had just told me I was not worth touching a guitar. A guitar was far valuable for someone like me to, to touch. But Something I, to be locked up. Yes. <laughs> so I picked up this guitar and, and I don't know, there was just some switch that was flicked for me to start learning how to play classical guitar. So I just started to strum away on this guitar. I didn't know what I was doing or what I was supposed to be doing with it, but there was something in me that was just like it was like a magnet clicking into place that I had to learn how to read and play classical guitar. So that's where I went from there and it was an absolute life changer. It's it's miraculous really the way you explain it because you come out of that ward and instead of going to the bottle shop, you go to the library and start taking out music books and teaching yourself. And, I mean, that takes extraordinary discipline. Yeah, I I borrowed a slab of books. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) No more slabs of beer. Just music books for me from now on. Yeah, so I've I've got a personality where I do get um, quite focused on one topic and, you know, that might be alcohol, (laughs) but now it was um, classical music. And so I had to borrow every single book I could find from all the libraries around me on classical music and music and I'm not a great reader I've got to tell you and, and um, but I managed to trawl through these books about music because I was so invested in it that every word even though I could hardly understand what I was reading I knew it was still getting 
you know, absorbed into my system somehow. And, you know, I found one of the books that really helped me was Guitar for Dummies. I don't know if you know that series of books. I do. That's fantastic. So <laughs> a couple of pages of that and I was um, playing classical music. Amazing. Something, I don't know what changed in my brain, but something had changed. I was just receptive to to music. Had it been your language in your brain beforehand? I'd played a few you know, scales on an old guitar as a kid when I did music lessons as, as a, you know, school kid. Um, but apart from that, the only other music in my life was the music I was hearing. So I didn't hear voices, but I heard music. So my hallucinations was classical music and opera singers, which is quite uh, interesting when you can't play or write music. How do you deal with that? But you've learned and you've made, like, you've spent <laughs> quite a lot of your time playing and writing music, right? Tell us about the years. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It was constantly in my hands. You know, people have um, fidget spinners and whatnot. Mine was my guitar. I just constantly had to be playing classical music and so I, I learned, you know, all the pieces from the Renaissance and I busked on the streets of a very um, suburban town. I busked Mozart and Beethoven and Fernando Saw and all these you know, Spanish pieces, I just memorised them all and just busked them for hours on end. And I probably made $5, but it didn't matter because I was I was playing this beautiful music that I had to play. And what did you notice about your mental health as this happened? I didn't know it at the time, but this was my medication. So, you know, I as I said, I used to hear music. So before that, I was medicated for what I heard it was just called hearing voices at the time. So, they, you know, I was on all the high-end antipsychotics and uh, getting all the side effects for that as well. And, you know, how's the voices today? Oh, yeah, I'm still hearing music. Oh, let's up the antipsychotics. Mm. <laughs> so that was, that was the medical way of dealing with it. But the, the guitar's way of dealing it was a lot more... Um, a lot more productive and it made me money. Like I made $5 a day. <laughs> and is it healing? Oh, totally. You're telling your story in a different way and you're using a different language and all of a sudden you're being celebrated for what the mental health system medicates. And I'm not saying it's the same way for everyone, but for me that just made sense to, to, to put my, my worries into my music and express it that way and do you ever look back and think there might have been a moment much earlier in your life before the suffering that you write about in your book where someone might have heard about the music in your head and think, oh, this is a musician? <laughs> if only a psychiatrist was a musician. Yes, absolutely. You know, I'd been raised in a household where aliens and the devil were, were commonplace. So, me expressing that in a psych ward is not the best thing to do. So it was misdiagnosed, to be honest, because they never asked where those beliefs came from. They just assumed that they were symptoms of schizophrenia when actually I was just living the way I'd been brought up. And that, that's kind of behind most mental illness, if you ask how people have been brought up. And I don't mean, you know, bad parenting or anything, but sometimes, you know, we try and westernise mental health too much when we should actually be saying, you know what, this doesn't fit in this box. We don't need to try and categorise it like this. 
we need to look at it differently. So I think in those days at the start, if there was a different option for me to tell my story and, and talk about what was going on, I don't think it would have ended up the way it did. Do you want to talk a bit further about your childhood and that that world of UFOs and devils you just mentioned? When I was younger, I had a diagnosis of autism in, in Wales, but it wasn't explored or supported because it was 1970s and girls didn't have autism. So, and the other thing was that I was in an autistic household, so no one was social. We didn't have any friends. We never went anywhere. There was no music. There was no arts. There was no culture. It was just absolute obsession about aliens and <laughs> religion. <laughs> so to me, that was a normal normal life to be more, you know, interested in those things. And when we came to Australia and I grew into a teenager and then a young adult and I started talking about these beliefs and and that that's how I ended up with so much trouble in my teens is because I was trying to fit my upbringing into a Western society and the two didn't mix. Mm. And I ended up in some really shocking spaces because I thought I was doing what was right by society, but actually it was far from right. Well, let's go back to um, creativity and well-being and your musicianship. This amazing musicianship that arose in your life, led did that lead to Skitsy Inc? And can you tell us what that is? Yay, Skitsy Inc. So... <laughs> <laughs> There used to be an organisation in Victoria called um, the Schizophrenia Fellowship and then for some unknown reason um, it stopped existing and got morphed into a a wider mental health uh, organisation about different diagnoses. So there's actually nothing or no one in Australia at the moment who's representing people with schizophrenia. There's no advocacy voice, there's no um, organisation where people can go specifically about schizophrenia. So back in the early 2000s when I was diagnosed with schizophrenia, I realised this Um, and because I'm a doer, I started up a little collective of of artists with schizophrenia and we did a little gig for Schizophrenia Week, which is in May at a uh, local live venue, little music gig, and it just kept building and every year it got bigger and bigger and bigger and then the event turned into a little organisation and now we're actually the only organisation that I know of, there might be others, that uh, represent people with schizophrenia and we're all people with lived experience of schizophrenia and, and similar realities. So we're doing what the government can't as so often happens in the mental health space. Um, is it particularly arts-based? Yeah, yeah. So it's very art space because that's, as we've just been talking about, my my healing and I know it works. And um, so we create art spaces and they're, they're proper industry art spaces. So it's not art, th- art therapy, um, you know, so we open pathways for people into stand-up comedy or filmmaking or writing or visual arts. Um, we did music for a long time as well. So it's arts focused. Creativity is so central to well-being, isn't it? Well, it's this um, changing the storytelling. So if you tell your story in the mental health system, you're medicated, but if you tell it in the arts, you're celebrated. And it's exactly the same story. So it's it's giving people who have been in the system a long time 
a different experience of their stories and a different ownership of those stories as well. So, you know, when you tell it to a psychiatrist or a caseworker, your story gets put in a file and the file gets shut and then the caseworker takes it away with them. But if you tell that exact same story in the arts, you know, in film or stand-up comedy, you take the story home with you and you can put it into whatever form you like and it's yours and you're the owner and you can direct it, you know. And so to me that's really healing and it's really empowering. Yeah, I was about to say it's about power, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Going back to your book now, that animals are a recurring motive. There is, of course, your friend Fox and there are cows and um, horses Tigger is central to your life, Heidi, um, and as you write, he's better than any psych support. Talk to me about dogs, Heidi. Oh. <laughs> I love dogs. I absolutely love dogs because I think, you know, as a person who was nonverbal for such a long time, I can just, you know, be around a dog and just feel completely at ease. And to me, you know, we have this thing in the in the mental health system called the CAT, which is the crisis assessment team. But there should be a dog team where we <laughs> send in a dog. You know, someone's in a crisis, and you send in this, you know, this golden retriever or a kelpie with, you know, and they just go up and just be a dog because for some reason, dogs speak the language of mental illness. Like it's just. We get each other. I'm not saying all people with with mental illness are going to love dogs, but I don't know. There's just something that a lot of people do gravitate towards dogs. And you see homeless people, you know, with dogs and you just go, wow, you know, what's going on there? Can you tell us about a, a moment with Tigger that demonstrates perfectly what you just said? There was one time... I came, I was brought home from the psych ward. I'd been admitted because I was, you know doing the do and I came home with a friend to pick up some clothes because the psych ward you know they don't put any emphasis on clothes whatsoever um anyway I'd come home with a friend and mum was looking after Tigger at the time for me and unbeknown to me she brought him over to the house at the same time I was going home to get some clothes and I was in a really distressed space still and you know unable to talk properly and so I came in the door and Tigger's there and he comes walking up to me and I just fell on the floor in the hallway and I thought, no, don't let Tigger see me like this. You know, it's going to distress him. It's going to upset him. And instead he came over and he sat next to me and he put his paw on my shoulder and he just looked into my face and I just lost it because it it was the exact thing I needed from him and from life to say, you know what, it's okay. It's okay. And to me that, you know, that that little paw on my shoulder from this little brown dog, he knew exactly what was going on and I didn't have to worry because he knew. He knew. But all he was saying was it's okay. Good dog. Mm. Heidi, when we talked earlier before this interview, you said it was really important for you in the course of us talking, to to find some optimism and joy. Why is it so important to you? There's a lot of anger and there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of pain already out there, but there's not much in the corner of optimism. 
Um, and I don't use the word hope anymore because it's such a cliche in, in mental health recovery spaces, <laughs> you know, the old rainbows and butterflies thing. Um, I'm sick of hope. Uh, sorry, that's not very optimistic, is it? <laughs> also not very joyful. No, no, but I think, you know, that's why I do stand-up comedy is because who's making jokes about the mental health system? Who's making jokes about schizophrenia? Who's, you know, there's not many people doing that. So to me it's a bit of a, it's an untapped market and uh, I just I just want to put more and more emphasis on people going, you know what, I've been a deficit for so long, I've been a burden of disease for so long, I've been a statistic for so long. Actually, it's my human right now to experience joy and explore joy and explore optimism. I don't have to keep telling my trauma story. Like I'm more than just telling the bad stuff that happens to me over and over and over again. There's this whole other part of me that has experienced joy as well and I want to explore that feeling and say you can have mental illness and you can also have moments and times in your life where you are happy. You don't have to carry that burden of disease every single day, you know, to keep proving your worth, that you're worth being interested in. You know, that a lot of people get stuck in the mental health system because it's the only way somebody's listening to them. It's the only way you get attention, you know, if you're on your own, you live on your own and you've got no family, but for one hour every two weeks somebody's, you know, actively listening to you and actively interested in you, of course you're going to put a lot of emphasis on that hour. But you've also got a right to spend another hour being very interesting for your for other aspects of you as well. So I think that needs to be explored a bit. And we should all listen. That seems like a really good place to end a really great conversation. Heidi, thank you so much. It was so great talking to you. Thank you. Heidi Everett is the author of My Friend Fox, published by Ultimo Press. In our new season of Book It In, we're also asking each of our authors for book recommendations. Here's Heidi's. Uh, Ruth Park, Harp in the South and Poor Man's Orange. It's so well written that it's like you're just drinking water when you read it. There's no struggle. And And it's in the language of the streets as well, which I really love. An oldie but a goodie. If this episode has brought up anything for you, please speak to someone. If you need support, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 and more information is available on their website. If you're from a culturally and linguistically diverse background, please go online and look for Embrace Multicultural Mental Health. For 24-hour crisis support, call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or if it's an emergency, please call 000. This episode was produced by Bethany Atkinson Quinton, Alison Chan, Jane Lee and Daniel Simo. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. And I'm Lucy Clark. Thanks for listening to Book It In. Remember to subscribe and follow us on your podcast app. We'll be back with another new episode next week. Until then... Happy reading.